Good morning, everybody. I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, and 6, verses 1 through 13. So afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may make a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. In chapter 6, verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment." I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession, for I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in and tell the king Pharaoh of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am a man of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So we've been in Exodus now for a couple of weeks, and we're getting to the part that gets really familiar. We're going to do plagues today. We're going to talk about all that God did to bring his people out. But I want to start this morning by talking about the shift that takes place in the book of Exodus right at these chapters. Up until now, we've been talking about Moses primarily, but the book of Exodus is primarily about God. Okay, So we we tell the story of Exodus as if it's about Moses. He's the hero of the story. And, And if you've seen Ridley Scott's movie, Exodus, Gods and Kings, it's very much about Moses and Pharaoh. But there's a subtle shift that takes place in the narrative today that reminds us Moses is actually not the main character of the book of Exodus. God is the main character of Exodus. In fact, God is the main character of the whole Bible. But God is the main character. And so there's a quote from D.L. Moody, you know, an early 20th century evangelist, that I think captures this so well. He says, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody. 40 years in the desert learning that he was nobody. And 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out that he was a nobody. How about that? So our story this morning is going to be the mesh of Moses finally realizing what God can do with somebody who knows that they are nobody. And 
On the flip side, we're going to see this morning what God does to those who are nobodies who think they are somebodies, which would be Pharaoh. We're going to get a great contrast of how God treats his people in this story. On the one side, judgment, and on the other side, salvation. So this morning, we're coming to the most famous part of the book of Exodus, probably, which is the plagues, and I would contend maybe the most misunderstood part of the book of Exodus, and you'll see why as we get into it. So the plagues begin in chapter 7. That's where you get, all of a sudden, this onslaught of natural disasters that envelop Egypt. But to understand the plagues, you have to start in chapter 5, where we started, where God lays out the purpose of what he's going to do in these plagues. So you have Moses, who meets with God at the burning bush, and he has God reveal his name and his character, and he says, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and you're going to bring my people out. And he says, I'm going to give them the land, I'm going to fulfill my promises, I'm going to send you before Egypt. He even says to Moses, I will make you like God to Pharaoh because you will see my power through you. And so Moses and Aaron, and reluctant as they are, go into the court of Pharaoh. And this is the showdown. This is the most powerful person in the world at this time, the Pharaoh. And he knows it. And you have Moses, who is a nobody, and knows it. And the rest of the book, all the way up until chapter 12, is what is going to happen in this showdown between these two men. But Pharaoh, when Moses comes in in chapter 5, asks the operative question. You know, Pharaoh does what we would call now big-timing Moses. Because when Moses comes in and says, God says, let my people go, Pharaoh doesn't say, who are you to tell me to let your people go? No, he actually does something far more profound. He says, who is God that I should listen to him and let your people go. So right at, right at the beginning, we see that Pharaoh has set himself up not just against Moses, but against God. You know, in, in Egypt at this time, they had a pantheon of gods, which we'll see the plagues are an attack on this pantheon of gods, but they also believed that Pharaoh was kind of a demigod. In some ways, he is the expression of the gods in their midst. That he's not just a mere mortal, but he does have a body, he has a human life, and eventually he will ascend up into the pantheon of the gods. And so Pharaoh, his self-consciousness is, it's me against your God. And the question for all of Exodus, you could summarize the whole book of Exodus with this question in chapter 5, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let your people go? Who is the Lord? In fact, the whole book of Exodus is a disclosure about who God is. And once you realize who God is, what you should do about it, which is to worship him. The whole book, everything from the moment Moses is born and put into the Nile River, to the plagues, to the parting of the Red Sea, to the meeting on Mount Sinai, to the edge of the Promised Land, all of Exodus is about who is the Lord. And Pharaoh tees us up with this amazing question, who is the Lord that I should worship him? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Notice what he says afterwards in verse 4, he says, uh, who's the Lord? And then he says, the God of Hebrews has met with us, Moses says. Please let us go three days into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to our God and worship him. And Pharaoh says back to them, 
Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? This is a little bit hard to see here in, the, in this translation, but this word for worship and this word for work are the same root word. They're different words, but they got the same root. And so there's a little play on words going on where Moses says, let our people go and worship their God. And Pharaoh comes back and says something like, you're taking them away from worship of their God, which is me. So the confrontation in Pharaoh's throne room is, these people have been called to worship the God of the universe. And Pharaoh says, they're worshiping me, which is good enough. And it's an invitation for us, as we read this text, to say, well, which God is worthy of worship? Which God is worthy of working for and obeying and listening to and loving? In the next few chapters through these plagues, God is going to show us the answer to that question, that he is both a God of judgment and he is a God of salvation. He is a God of judgment and he is a God of salvation. So one thing that we learn about this encounter through the plagues is that God should be obeyed because he's the most powerful being in the universe. I mean, just simply put, a God that can do this to Egypt, imagine what he could do to us. Right? That's one of the points that we take away from this is this must be an immensely powerful God. He stands over the world in judgment, and the mightiest empire in the world is undone in a span of weeks by this God. All their sorcery, all their leadership, all their troops, all their crops, all of the things that they've stored up, everything that they've prepared is undone like that by this God. And there are a lot of scenes of judgment in the Exodus, but I, I want to point to three of them. The first one is an obvious judgment on the gods of Egypt. So in the ancient world, they had a belief that there were many gods and certain gods had kind of an ascendancy in certain areas. It would almost be like you have home turf. And so the gods of Egypt are powerful, but they are especially powerful in Egypt because they have home field advantage. That's, that's where they live. That's where they work. This is their domain. If you go to Canaan, there are other gods, Baal and Asherah, and they are most powerful in Canaan because that's their home turf. And you could go to the Greeks and to the Romans and to different cities. The city of Athens famously is the favorite city of Athena. And so she is the goddess who has hege hege hegemony over that city. And in Egypt, their claim is, you may worship other gods, but in this city, our gods rule. And one of the claims that God makes all the way through the Old Testament is, it doesn't matter where you are, there is one supreme God. Amen. It doesn't matter if you're in Egypt or in Canaan or in Rome or as Acts says, from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth, there is one all-powerful God. The way that God decides to show this in this setting is by systematically dismantling the domain of the Egyptian gods. So when we get to chapter 7 and we start to see the plagues, the first plague starts in chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent to me saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. 
but so far you have not obeyed. So thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Notice what God is doing. By this you'll know that this is not just a regional God, but that I am the Lord over all. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it will turn into blood. Sure enough, he takes his staff and stretches it out, and when he has it over the waters, the canals and the ponds and the pools of water become blood. And there was blood all throughout the land, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. The Nile was the central part of life in Egypt. and In many ways, it's still the central part of life in Egypt. It is the source of where they got their power. They could use it for trade. They could use it for protection. But it was also the place where they got their life. They depended on it as a vital resource. And in some ways, they worshipped the Nile figuratively as a god, that this god of the Nile was a protector of Egypt. In the same way that they worshipped things like the sun. And so if you have two of the most powerful gods in Egypt, you notice the plagues begin striking the Nile and rendering it useless. In fact, rendering it dead. Right? The reason that it's turned into blood is not because that's just like a really cool trick. The reason it's turned into blood is because it has been slaughtered. The god of the Nile has been slaughtered. And then the last plague before the angel of death is darkness. So if, you're, if you find yourself in a place where you worship the Nile, the life-giving power of the Nile, and the sun, what God has done in the first plague and in the ninth plague is he has slaughtered the God of the Nile and darkened the light of the sun. There is a total, and, and everything in, intervening is assigned to these various Egyptian gods. And in, in the intervening plagues, God is showing that he is the God, what he says goes. There is nothing outside of his control. There is no one that can stand against him. Worshiping anything else is futile. Of course, this is a bigger theme than just the book of Exodus in the Bible. When you get to the prophets, mainly the prophet Isaiah, they give almost satirical descriptions of the futility of worshiping another god. In Isaiah chapter 46, where he's talking about the idols of Babylon, Isaiah, I think in kind of a a laughing, mocking voice, says, the great gods of Babylon, Bel and Nebo, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things that you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they they bow down, they, they fall over on the carts as you're trying to take them with you. They cannot save the burden that they're even carrying. They themselves go into captivity. Think about the irony of this. When Babylon is conquered and their people are spread out across the world, they have to carry their idols into captivity with them. What good are those idols? Listen to me, God says, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, whom have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. Look at this contrast. God is saying, those idols, you have to carry them. But I have carried you. Notice the difference here? He says, to whom will you liken me? Or make me equal? Or compare me that we may be alike? 
Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver on the scales, they have to hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. And then they fall down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it, and they set it in its place, and it stands there, and it can't even move from that place. If you cry out, it does not answer or save you from your trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind your transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. God is never afraid to set himself down next to whatever our favorite idol is at the time. There's no threat to God in saying, let's just compare between God and the object of our worship and see who's more worthy of worship. Nowhere in the Bible is God ever afraid that maybe in a contest of our loves and our desires and our gods that he might show up lacking in comparison to them. And in Egypt especially, what he proves to the people of Israel and to the people of Egypt is, your gods cannot save you. They are not worthy of your worship. The second scene of judgment in Exodus is a judgment on the world itself. And this is a really fascinating uh, line to trace through the plagues. And I'm just going to do it briefly. But the plagues, in some ways, correspond to the creation of the world. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, what you have is God gives light out of the darkness. And then he separates the heavens from the earth and the water from the land. And he fills the land with living things. And the animals are given dominion in such a way that they eat the plants. And human beings are the crown of creation. And they are given dominion to rule over the world as these co-regents of God. Well, in the plagues, look what happens. In the first plague, the Nile is turned to blood. The waters of life are rendered useless. And then for the next few plagues, what you have is nature overtaking humanity. Whereas humans were given dominion at the beginning, now nature has dominion over the humans. They've got frogs that they can't get rid of, and gnats, and flies, and boils on their skin, and their livestock are dying, and hail is coming down from the heavens. Locusts are eating the crops, and finally, in a kind of reversal of let there be light, God says, let there be darkness over the face of the land. Of course, the final plague, which we'll talk about next week with the Passover, the final plague is a reversal of God's gift of life into the universe, where God effectively says, let there be death. The plagues are a decreation of the world. If Genesis 1 walks us through the creation and flourishing of the world at God's hand, then Exodus chapter 5 through 11 walks us through the decreation of a sinful world that rebels against God. And in the end, you wind up in darkness, just like the primordial situation where it says, and the earth was without form and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep. We could say at the end of the Exodus, Egypt was without form and void, and there was darkness over the face of the land. But most specifically, this is a judgment against Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the stand-in for anyone who would raise themselves up against God. Anybody who would proclaim themselves independent of the worship of God, demanding the worship of other people, the, the plagues are a judgment against them. 
So Pharaoh is, is really fascinating in this story because we always want to know what's going on with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. That doesn't seem very fair. You know, for him, he's probably a pretty good guy and wanted to do what God wanted, but then God swooped in and hardened his heart, and now he's not able to repent. But the story actually gives us a very different picture of what's going on. Pharaoh wants to resist, and he is so powerless in the showdown that he has set him up against that God has to strengthen his resolve to make it to the end of the plagues. Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Because it would have been over so quickly that nobody would have learned anything if he hadn't. No human is able to withstand this kind of judgment from God without God actually fortifying their spirit against God. You see this in the very last plague that Pharaoh is ready many times to go ahead and give in, and God hardens the heart of Pharaoh because Pharaoh has hardened his own heart, but it's not hard enough to withstand the salvation of God. In fact, we do see repentance from Pharaoh at the end of the plagues. In chapter 9, verse 27, he says, This time I have sinned, and the Lord is right, and I and my people are wrong. Plead with the Lord that there is enough of God's thunder. We've had enough of his thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you will stay no longer. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart. In the end, when you have the Passover, Pharaoh sends Moses out of his presence and says, I will never see your face again, but then Pharaoh asks for a blessing from the Lord. So while there's a lot more to say on this in terms of why God hardens his heart and what that has to do with human freedom, the The conclusion that we get in the text is Pharaoh is 100% responsible for his hardening and for his actions against God, but 100% incapable in the battle that he set himself up with against the living God. So we come to the end of this first part of the plagues and we realize that this act of judgment is all-encompassing against the gods, against the earth, and against sinful humanity. And many of us sit here and wonder, why all the judgment, right? Why, why not just move straight to the salvation? Why not just skip the judgment and just woo the human heart and have salvation arise? And I was sitting in a coffee shop in McAllister this week, and I was working on this sermon, and I'd seen another pastor that I knew, and so we had talked for a minute, and we were sitting kind of a few feet away from each other, and this other guy comes in and sits down next to this guy and starts talking. And, of course, I have my AirPods in, so I, I can hear that they're talking, but I can't hear what they're saying, so I pause it so I can hear what they're saying. <laughs> and this guy introduces himself, finds out that this guy is a pastor, and starts talking about how he can't believe in God because of all the bad things that God does. And, you know, I, I would believe except for all the things that God does. He doesn't mention the Exodus per se, but it's that kind of thing. You know, God's He's off, you know, angrily killing people and doing all these things, and I just, I just can't believe in a God like that. And so I'm sitting there listening. I'm kind of like, what's he going to say? You know, what's he going to do? I'm, I, and, and he starts off on a good path. So I just left my AirPod, AirPods in the whole time. I didn't say anything. I didn't jump in. He seemed like he totally had it under control and kept working. And basically what he said was, there's a way that God has created the universe that judgment and salvation are two sides of the same coin. If you want salvation, you have to have judgment. And if you have judgment, we really, really want to have salvation. 
Because as much as we'd like to pretend like this isn't the case, we live in a fallen, sinful world. And it's, it's not just an abstract sinful world, like all those sinners out there are ruining the world for us. It's that we are sinful people. We deserve the wrath of God. In fact, one of the reasons that God is often doing things that seem judgmental and wrathful and angry in the Bible is because of the gravity of human sin. In fact, he wouldn't be God. That's one of the things he shows Egypt is he wouldn't be God if he couldn't follow through on his word that sin leads to death. A God that can't keep his word, a God that is powerless against the affront of sin is not a God worthy of your worship. And as much as we would like to imagine a world with no judgment or no wrath, maybe we should recalibrate and imagine a world without sin. One of the great theologians of the middle of last century, Richard Niebuhr, said that effectively what that version of Christianity wants is a God without wrath bringing a man without, man without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. That's actually no gospel at all. The God of the universe is justified in bringing judgment against sin. But the one thing that stands unique about our God versus any other powerful God in the history of the universe is that he brings salvation through his judgment. In almost every other faith in the world, judgment is the final word. But God has designed the universe such that judgment gives way to salvation. That at the end of the universe, it isn't going to be God who stands against a sinful people, but God who stands with a people who have been redeemed and sheltered from the wrath of God because of somebody who came and paid the penalty for them. So why is God worthy to be worshipped? Well, we've seen the judgment of God, but what about the salvation of God? He is a God bringing salvation into the world. And this is why I read chapter 6 as well, because the moment that Moses and, and Aaron leave Pharaoh's court, they are extremely discouraged, okay? So they go in, they say, let the people go. They're kind of expecting Pharaoh to do it, and he's like, get out. I don't know your God. I'm not going to worship him. In fact, I'm going to make life more difficult for the Hebrews just to go ahead and prove that I'm the one that has the power. So that's where he makes them make bricks without straw. You remember this? So he says, all right, they obviously have too much free time. They've got a protest going on, trying to unionize, all this stuff. Let's, let's go ahead and up the ante here. No straw, same amount of bricks. Tells his taskmasters to drive them night and day. And what do the Hebrew people do? They turn to Moses like, what are you doing? You've made our lives so much more miserable than it was. So God comes back to Moses. And he says, you are going to see my strength against Pharaoh. For at the end of all of this, Pharaoh's actually going to send you out. You're not just going to have to leave. He's going to send you out. And in fact, elsewhere in the Exodus, what you see is part of the reason that God sends his people out the way he does is because he sends them out with the riches of Egypt to go into the promised land. So they don't just leave Egypt. They're escorted out of Egypt with all the gold and silver of their masters in Egypt. That's God's plan. So God speaks to Moses and he says, remember what I told you in chapter three? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I appeared to your fathers and I am not just the God of your fathers, I'm the God now of you. I'm a God of deliverance and salvation now. 
He says, I am the Lord. And he uses a little bit different name here than he did before. So back in chapter 3, we talked about this last week, this name that God gives, he gives it a couple different ways, is the name Yahweh. Or Yah Yahweh is what he first gives them, which means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. It's kind of a nonsensical name, but it's a phrase, it's a statement that I am going to prove myself to you. I am the one who is who he is. My character will never change. And I will show you in every situation that I am who I am. So God is telling them his name in such a way that is a promise. If you trust me and you trust what I say, I will always fulfill my promises. And here in verse 7, he comes to Moses again. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord. Here, it's slightly different. It's, you will know that I am always the one who is. I will always be exactly who I am. In the face of Pharaoh, in the face of the plagues, in the face of the Passover, in the wilderness, in the promised land, on the cross, at the empty tomb, I will be who I am always. No shadow of turning, no change, no inconsistency, no forgetting, no leaving you. I will always be who I am for you. In fact, this line here in chapter 6, verse 7, recurs about 10 times in the next few chapters. You will know that I am the Lord. It gives us an insight that God, from the very beginning, tells Moses exactly what the point of judgment is. He actually has a theme that he's working out. He has a goal that he is going to follow in this path of judgment, which is all judgment reveals that he is the Lord. Why bring judgment on Egypt? So that they will know that I am the Lord. Why bring judgment against sin? So that people will know that I am the Lord. Why bring judgment against Jesus on the cross for our sins? So that we would know that he is the Lord. The end of judgment is that we would know that he is Lord. That we would discover through the judgment of God against sin the pathway out of sin, salvation, through Jesus Christ. So God tells Moses from the beginning, things are going to get bad, but the worse they get, here's what you're going to see. People are going to start to see that I am the Lord. Well, sure enough, this, this actually happens. And one of the reasons I think the plagues are so misunderstood is because the plagues are not primarily punishment, okay? So actually, a better word for plague, I'm not trying to change this now after thousands of years, but maybe a better word for plague would be wonder. That's what this word can also mean, is a wonder of the Lord, a work of the Lord, a sign from the Lord, an act of God. And each one of these plagues is a wonder in that it reveals something about who God is and what we could find in him for salvation. And so while the most obvious line of salvation is Israel, maybe the most interesting line of salvation in this story is the magicians. So when Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh's court, the first thing they do is they do the whole staff thing, right? So Moses and Aaron have this staff, they throw it down, Whereas in the wilderness, this is kind of interesting, when, when they throw the staff down in the wilderness, it's a snake, which is the word nechash. And that's like a garden snake, like a regular old snake. Kind of a cool trick, but not like really all that crazy. But when they get to Pharaoh's court, and he throws down the staff, 
it's no longer a Nahash, it's a Tanim, which is a monster. A dragon would be our best English word for this. A dragon, a giant, amphibious, serpentine lizard. Now this is a cool trick, right? This is really an amazing thing to do. In fact, there's a lot of symbolism in this because Pharaoh himself is referred to with this very word in the later prophets. In Ezekiel and in Isaiah, he refers to Pharaoh as this dragon, this serpent, this giant, scary lizard who sits in the midst of the Nile. Maybe the most similar is to where we see in the book of Job the Leviathan, this symbol of all that is rebellious against God, this giant and unwieldy dragon-like creature that God says, I will put a hook in your nose and bring you into submission. The magicians of Pharaoh's court are kind of stunned by this, but they set themselves to do similar things, right? These guys have some ability to imitate what God is doing. And, and in the next time that Moses and Aaron come, they turn the water into blood in the Nile, and it says that the magicians are able to do the same thing, which if you think about it, is really kind of a dumb thing to do, right? All the water in all the, all the land has turned into blood, and these magicians are like, this little existing water we have left, we can turn it to blood as well. Pharaoh's going to be like, guys, turn it back, right? Like with all the power you have, what we really want is blood to water, not water to blood. And the magicians are repeating what God is doing to an extent. If you go through the plagues, when you get to the water, they're able to repeat with something similar. When you get to the frogs, they're able to, do, they're able to corral some frogs, they're able to bring those in. But the third plague, the gnats, is a little bit different. When the Lord says to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And he did so. And Aaron stretches out his hand with his staff and he struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, and the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Okay, this is fascinating. This is the finger of God. So what's, what's different about this plague, this miracle, than the others? Well, we get the sense that on the others, you're, you're manipulating nature. You turn water into blood. You have frogs from across the face of the earth that have a giant convention in Egypt. But in the third plague, you have lifelessness that brings forth life. You have dust on the ground that all of a sudden becomes alive. You know who the only person who can do that is? God. These, these magicians are able to manipulate nature. And it would be a fascinating conversation to be like, how are they doing that? What's going on here? I'd love to talk about that. But instead, the point for this morning is their limit is reached when you try to bring life from something that is dead. Only God can do that. And we see the first glimpse actually not in the Israelites, right? So when, when the Israelites hear that God's going to rescue them, they're like, yes, they have a worship service. And then when Pharaoh imposes bricks without straw, they start complaining again. They don't actually come around until the Passover. 
But the first people who realize that this judgment is so that we can learn who God is and begin to worship him are the magicians who realize there's something going on here. These signs, these wonders cannot be from another sorcerer or another source of magical ability. These things, they tell Pharaoh, must be from the finger of God. Never underestimate the power of judgment to open the eyes of an unlikely person to the salvation of God. A couple of weeks ago, I read a quote from C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain where it says, God whispers in our good times, but he shouts to us in our difficult times. Our pain is a megaphone for God to speak to us. And the people that heard the megaphone in this story first were these magicians who were saying, this judgment cannot be from man It must be from God. Well, the story with them actually gets even more interesting. By the time you get to the sixth plague, which is the boils, it says, take handfuls of soot, again, ash, dead things from the kiln, and let Moses throw it in the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust over all of Egypt, and they will become boils breaking out in the sores on man and beast throughout all the land. So they took the soot from the kiln, and they stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, And it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not even stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came up upon the magicians and all the Egyptians. Right. So now it's not even that they can't produce it. They can't even defend themselves anymore from this. They they actually can't even stand. They've been utterly and totally defeated before these plagues. And by the time you get to the locusts, Something amazing happens. When you get to the locusts, they say, go into Pharaoh and tell him that there's going to be locusts that are going to devour everything. And his courtiers, who would include the magicians and the high priests of Egypt and his advisors and the secretaries of his government and all of the people who are in the upper echelon of Egypt say, they beg to Pharaoh, can't you see that Egypt is ruined Can't you see that the whole place has been undone because of your obstinacy? We need to worship this God. The judgment on Egypt brings the salvation, not just of Israel, but to the people who have been struck by these plagues. They realize we should worship the Lord. That's why many scholars, this doesn't get a lot of play because it's not not like in the Prince of Egypt or it's definitely not in Ridley Scott's movie, but there are a lot of conversions in Egypt during the Exodus. This is, this is part of the story that we don't even think about is there are many in Egypt who, because of what God does, turn to worship the living God because he is a God of salvation. And sometimes, like these plagues in Egypt, the only way that we can see that is through judgment. This is the great statement of God's character at the end of Exodus that wraps up all of what we've talked about this morning. God goes before Moses, and he says, he passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. And it says, and Moses bowed his head, and worshiped. See, the essence of the book of Exodus is when, the God, when God reveals himself 
and we see all of who he is, our only response is to worship him. When God reveals himself in judgment and salvation through the plagues, the people worship him. When he reveals himself in the cloud by day and the fire by night, the people worship him. When he reveals himself to Moses as a God who is compassionate and loving and saving and judging against sin, what does Moses do? He bows down and he worships him. Let me close with this. In the Passover Seder, so you know Jews still celebrate the Passover today, and there are many different variations of this Passover Seder that have come down through literally thousands of years. But one of the features that's pretty universal in these different Seders is when you retell the story of Egypt and you tell the story of the plagues, the person who's telling the story of the plagues will dip their finger in the cup of wine and they will let a drop or two drop out onto the table for every plague that they read. So by the time you get to the end of this story of the plagues, you've had 10 or more drops of wine come out of the cup and be spilled on the ground. And there's several different things that have arisen as to why people do this. You know, one of them was saying that they don't want to have a full cup of wine, you know, their joy being full when they're talking about the destruction of their enemies. But I think the most compelling reason, and one of the older reasons in this Seder, is that they remember that their salvation came at a cost. Their salvation came at a cost. Blood was shed for them. The punishment fell on someone else to secure their freedom. Of course, Jesus, at the Last Supper, said something very similar to his disciples. When they were doing this Passover Seder together on, on the Thursday night before he dies, he makes a very similar statement. This cup is a new covenant, not like the old covenant, because in this covenant, it's not your blood that's shed for your sins, it's my blood that's shed for your sins. The cost of our sins was paid by another. To where when we come to take communion, as we'll do in a minute, we're remembering the exact lesson of the Passover, which is the blood of someone else, the costly blood of someone else was shed so that we could have salvation. Judgment and salvation. That God is a God who by no means clears the guilty but exacts payment for sin, but has given us who trust in Christ the ability to flee from his judgment into the arms of Christ and have salvation with him forever. Our salvation, too, has come from judgment, and the blood of another has set us free. Let me pray. Father, sometimes it's difficult to even wrap our minds around these scenes in the Old Testament of your judgment and your wrath and your decreation of a place like Egypt. So, Father, remind us this morning that it's an easy application for us every moment we try to raise ourselves against you or put ourselves first or steal worship from you, that we deserve your judgment. Father, remind us this morning that actually you, you do not tolerate rebellion against your good rule of the universe. And Father, in that same breath, remind us that we who stood condemned have been forgiven and loved and given grace because of your son. Father, remind us this morning that our salvation was not just some easy fiat that you spoke, but 
a costly sacrifice of your son on our behalf. Father, help us to see your salvation in every part of our life and in our world. Lord, we do pray that people we know would come to know you. Salvation through judgment. That the difficult times would turn our hearts to you as our strength and our sustainer. And as we take communion this morning, Lord, we, we pray that you would remind us how much we are loved through your son Jesus. That as we take this bread and we take this cup, it was the body and blood of Jesus spilled for us that have brought us back into relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we take communion this morning, we'll stand, we'll come to the table, tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. And when we do that, we're proclaiming the Lord's death for us until he comes again. Come to the table of Jesus Christ.